I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the lamp are its temple. The temple, again, was the place where you met God, but at this point, you don't need to go to a place to meet God. Wherever you go, God is. There will be no need of a sanctuary or a worship center. God will literally fill the new Jerusalem with his presence. We will experience God in the fullest sense. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Our Father's House. Pastor Carl will conclude today's sermon as he preaches on the superiority of the Father's house. We will be in the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 22. Please join us as we continue. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, the British some decades ago required that from that time forward, all, all buildings be made out of limestone, which is sometimes they call the golden city. Why? Because at sunset, it has a golden hue to it. Here's a hotel just recently built. Uh, bring it up if you would. And when you see the sun setting on it, it has kind of a golden hue to it. And the Brits did that because it was their gesture of saying, this is a foreview, a preview of what the new Jerusalem will be, will be like. And of course, he says here, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Clear glass was the best quality glass in John's day. So when he describes the gold like that, he's underscoring, this is not like defective gold. This is the best of all the best gold you could ever imagine. So like the jasper, this gold should be taken as literal. And again, we're just getting a glimpse of what he saw. And I think it's not until we see it with our own eyes that we'll be able to take it all in. The 12 foundation stones of the city not only have the 12 names of the apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, they have 12 different precious stones. And the most beautiful and costly stones that we get in little chips here on earth. <laughs> the, the, the places, the foundation stones are made out of it. Uh, if you go with me sometime to Israel or if you've been there and you tour the tunnels that have been open for about 15 years now where you can actually go down to street level where Jesus walked, this is a foundation stone that Herod built. I heard this is a foundation stone to the Temple Mount. And of course, there's the Temple Mount that gave you that flat platform, and on top of it was the temple, and Jesus predicted the temple would be raised, and indeed it was. This stone, we usually have someone at one end and someone at the other end to give you a sense of its length. It's 45 feet long. It's 12 feet high. It's 14 feet deep. It weighs 600 tons equivalent to some 200 large elephants, uh, two 747 jumbo jets, and they moved these things to build the platform on which the temple would sit. But I want to tell you, these are just like little pebbles <laughs> compared to what the new Jerusalem will be like and what God has for us. 
Um, look further, verse 19, the foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. We just saw a picture. It's a blood red color. The second sapphire, that's a deep blue. And by the way, according to Exodus, that's the stone under the feet of God. The third is chalcedony. This gemstone has kind of a bluish green color to it. The fourth is emerald, a deep green color. The fifth is sardinox. Gemologists tell us that this is a white stone with uh, brown streaks through it. The sixth is sardius, a deep red gemstone. The seventh, chrysolite, a gold-colored gemstone. The eighth is beryl, he mentions. This refers to a stone that is kind of a teal blue color. The ninth is topaz, a golden greenish color. The tenth is chrysoprase, which is a pale green gemstone. The eleventh is jacinth, kind of a a pale violet color, and the twelfth is amethyst, a rich, deep purple. Again, we're not even on the inside yet. These are just the foundation stones, and it just kind of staggers the imagination. Again, we, we have just chips of these things, and sometimes people make them to rings and bracelets for birthstones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are the foundation stones of a city that goes 1,500 miles into the, uh, 15 miles into the sky. This is our Father's house. Further notice, Main Street in verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. By the way, if you're a good real estate agent, one of the things you tell the person's house you're selling, you need to make the front door look good. That's what they always tell you. It may look a little trashy inside, but at least make the front door look good so that you get a good first impression. Well, God has 12 front doors. Again, we already read that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written on the doors. And we saw that these gate towers bear their names. Again, why? Because God the Son came through the people of Israel. I told you last time, I hope your best friend is a Jew because if he's not, you won't go to heaven. Jesus is a Jew. Anti-Semites don't like him. But here we learn each one of the gates was a single pearl. Each of the gates. I know we have all these jokes about Peter at the pearly gates. He's at none, by the way. And of course, remember verse 17, we're given the thickness of the wall, 144 cubits, or 220 feet or 72 yards, translated into English. John here is describing these gates as a single pearl. Now think about that. Think about that for just a second. If you could take the top off of this 1,800-seat auditorium, a single pearl that's described here won't quite fit through. These are magnificent. And why have a pearl each gate made out of pearl. Well, some of you have pearls on this morning. I see a few of you. You know how a pearl is made. There's a little irritant in the oyster, usually caused by sand, and it wraps that fluid over and over and over and over and over until it forms a beautiful pearl. It's a result of a wound. And we will be forever reminded of the wounds of the Lord Jesus. Rich wounds visible above, we sing. And indeed, it's true, even in this glorified body. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. 
Again, what asphalt is down here, <laughs> gold is up there. All the gold I own in the world is right there on my finger. And it's a cheap low grade because I was about broke when I asked my precious wife to marry me. It's everywhere up there. And it should be because God is so great. God is so magnificent. And again, it's a symbol of the deity of God in Scripture. And God's deity will permeate this place from one side to the other. You say, Pastor Carl, do you think the streets will really be made out of gold? God said what he meant. He meant what he said. And for you to come to another conclusion is to abuse and misuse the Holy Scripture. Just as I will have a real body with real legs to walk on real streets that will be made out of gold. It will be paved with pure gold. Now, the word street here is singular in Greek. But the way it's used in Greek can describe an avenue or a multiplicity of streets. And so I don't think it would be in error to say that the streets are made out of gold. Remember, the architect and builder is God himself. Now, beyond the size and the splendor, let's think finally about the superiority of the Father's house. The superiority of the Father's house. Look further as God's city is described beginning now in verse 22. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, John noted that some items were missing from the city. And here he mentioned no temple. Now, that's interesting. Because if you've read or studied Revelation with us, um, back in chapters 5 and 6, he described a temple that is in heaven. He described the temple furniture. Let me read to you from, um, well, let me read, when chapters 5 and 6, he mentions the golden uh, altar and the brazen altar. And then in chapter 8 and verse 3, he says, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. In addition, in Revelation 11 and verse 19, we read, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Earlier in Revelation, there's a temple. Now there's no temple. Remember what the writer of the Hebrews said in Hebrews 8 and verse 5. He's quoting Moses in Exodus 25. Moses, the Bible says, was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So he didn't just come up with an architectural design. He came up with a pattern that God revealed of a temple that is in heaven. And the word pattern here is the word type, tupos. You hear pastors sometimes speak of a type. A type is an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament reality. And of course, if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that to escape persecution, to appear more Jewish on the outside, many of the early Jewish Christians went back to temple worship. They didn't want their businesses boycotted and they didn't want to be persecuted, so they appeared more Jewish. But the writer says, you don't do that. That's a digression. You shout that the temple was just a shadow of the reality, namely Jesus. Now, if the rapture were to happen today, you'd go to heaven and you'd see this temple. It's there right now. 
Then we'll come back with Christ to the earth. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer will be fulfilled. You cannot erase the millennial kingdom. There's all these books even written by true Christians interacting with scripture, taking verses on the millennial reign of Christ and saying this is what heaven is like. Well, it might be a glimpse of what heaven's like, but you can't get rid of heaven. But they do that because they don't believe in a literal Israel uh, having her promises kept. God will fulfill those promises. So we go to heaven today, we see a temple, we come back, we rule and reign with Christ. And there's a millennial temple, never been built. Its size, its dimensions, its descriptions are given at the end of the book of Ezekiel. And God is going to have people to go there. Why? Because it's going to be a teaching tool of what the Messiah did while he was on earth. Jesus will literally be reigning on earth. Tribulation saints who enter in to the millennial reign of Christ because they survived the tribulation and their natural body will have children, great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren. They'll live for upwards of a thousand years. A youth is described as a hundred years old. A man's life is described like a tree. And so the children of tribulation saints will have to make a decision for Christ. And one of the things that God will do is he'll use the temple to teach all that Christ did. I was in, in Israel one time and we were in the tabernacle, a reproduction of the tabernacle. And it was a great opportunity to teach. What did this structure mean? What was its importance? What did it picture concerning Jesus? Because it's all about him, the tabernacle. And I suspect when we get to heaven, initially, God will teach us all about the temple in heaven which is a picture of the one that was created on earth first as a tent, later as a more permanent structure. Why? Because probably as church saints, we'll be involved in evangelism during the millennial reign, teaching and preaching to the nations that will come to the millennial temple and what its meaning is. But now the millennium is over. And chronologically, the temple is gone. Look at verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the lamp are its temple. The temple, again, was a place where you met God, but at this point, you don't need to go to a place to meet God. Wherever you go, God is. There will be no need of a sanctuary or a worship center. God will literally fill the new Jerusalem with his presence. We will experience God in the fullest sense. Now today, of course, we as evangelicals, we don't want to separate the spiritual from the non-spiritual, the secular from, because in one sense, it's all spiritual. Your work is spiritual, the Bible says. What you did this week is spiritual. Do your work heartily as unto the Lord, not for men. When we get in heaven, the Lord's presence will fill that place. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do to the glory of the Lord, we will be able to perfectly, fully worship God 24-7 in all that we do. Because worship is not just when we come here and we sing and we pray and we, we offer our voices to the Lord. That's one aspect of worship. Your whole life is a worship experience. And yes, someday there's coming a time when you will work, but it won't be the kind of work that you had in heaven with all the toil and the thorns and the thistles. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. 
What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful description of what God is going to do. And it says here, the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. He's given us a glimpse of the brightness and magnificence of Jesus himself who will light heaven. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John just had a glimpse of glory? And Christ wasn't even in his transformed, glorified body. But for a moment, he was transfigured. And and he was transfigured before them, Matthew records, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments as white as light. And again, this is his pre-glorified body. And it's not by accident that Malachi relates the S-U-N to the S-O-N. And of course, even Paul, when Jesus pulls back a shade, lets some light stream down to heaven. At midday, when the sun is highest and brightest in the sky, he's blinded. Light a candle in the middle of the day, it does nothing. When God lets a little ray of light from heaven come down, Paul's blinded by it. Why? Because God is light, and this city is filled and lit by the Lord himself. John wrote years earlier, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That speaks of the absolute perfection of heaven. Light in Scripture is used metaphorically to dispel ignorance, and it's used metaphorically to describe sin. There's no ignorance here. There's no sin here. And so the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. And the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now again, this is just the new Jerusalem. There's debate, well, what will the new earth be? Maybe God will have a sun, and maybe he'll have planets. I suspect he will. He'll give us a picture of what it was like before the fall. But in heaven, there's no night, no darkness. It's lit totally by the glory of the living God. Further, in verse 24, the nations, the ethnoi, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This city will be so bright, it provides light for the saved, for the nations, the Gentiles, meaning all those who are saved. John has described all these nations earlier in the Revelation, in Revelation 7 and verse 9. By the way, it's during the tribulation period that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. This gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world when during the seven-year period, and then the end will come, and God will use the Jewish nation to accomplish it. And so John can describe, and I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne. Yeah, we've been involved in two translations, and thank God for your generosity that we put the Bible in two languages that previously did not have a Bible. But God's going to pull the whole thing off during the tribulation period. It's absolutely amazing. And he describes here kings, what today we might call presidents or prime ministers, or as we remembered yesterday. Yes, even politicians can know and love the Lord. I know it may be exceptional, but it does happen. He's describing kings and regular folks. They'll all bring their glory into this city. Verse 25 and 26. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Once again, the reason you need gates is because this city is simply the capital city of heaven. And so people can come in and out of it. 
and the gates will never be closed. That would shout at any first century person. You know, more and more Americans are living in fear. What we saw yesterday in Texas, they say, could that happen in Beaufort? It's happening somewhere almost weekly. Could happen anywhere. Make sure the doors are locked. No telling there's a boogeyman out there. (laughs) There's no fear in heaven. All sin is eradicated. It's a magnificent place. And then to highlight the fact that it's absent from all sin, he writes in verse 27, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Sin and sinners, as we've already seen, have been dealt with. They're already in the lake of fire. All sin has been removed. Even our sin nature will at that point be eradicated. When we see Christ, we'll be like him. We'll never be able to sin again. So John writes here that nothing unclean will be part of this eternal state, meaning no sinners, and there will be nothing unclean in us as well. We'll be perfect. Our salvation will be complete. Everything in thought, word, or deed that you perform will be holy, holy, holy. And so he says, no one who practices abomination and lying, that word practices is critical. Can a Christian lie? You better believe it. We all stumble in many ways. But if you practice lying as a way of life or other abominations, you just haven't been regenerated. You've never met the living God. Only those who've been forgiven who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, how can we apply this passage this morning? Number one, this passage gives us hope. This passage gives us hope. It gives us hope in the most painful of situations that life will bring. There are believers across the world that before this day is completed, they will lose their lives for the cause of Christ. There are believers who are in the sound of my voice this morning, who have lost a loved one. Some of you are suffering with an incurable disease this morning. There are others that are in abusive relationships. There's others who live in nations. And we don't even think about it because we have such an abundance. Even the poor are rich compared to the other nations. But there are believers this morning who are struggling to survive. But someday it's all going to change. Earth is not our home. We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. This is why Paul can write in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, if you know Paul, you know he's suffered a lot. Read 2 Corinthians. And Paul says, I consider, or I reckon, it's a, it's a Greek word, it's a bookkeeping term. He said, you put all the heartaches of this life on one side of the ledger, and you put our future glory, and it doesn't even begin to compare. Now, that's a biblical axiom that you can count on, that you should count on, that this is not our home. We're aliens and strangers. We're just passing through. 
the scripture says, in heaven he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain because the first things had passed away. We see now in a mirror dimly. Someday we'll see very, very clearly. We'll understand it better by and by. Those of you who lost loved ones in an untimely way, you say, why, Lord? You'll understand it better by and by. Secondly, this passage not only gives us hope, it gives us a warning. The last verse of the chapter, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you know that you know that you know that your name is in that book? It can be. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to a place where there's no violence, no crime, no sickness, no cursing, no swearing, no drunkenness, no immorality, but a place that permeates with holiness and goodness. And if you don't go there, it will be no one's fault but yours because you will have rejected a payment that was made with his rich red blood, Jesus who died in your place. And if you come trying to bring your own merit and your own goodness, you'll never see it. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed this morning. You're here today and you say, I hope I go to heaven, I think I might go. You can know whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. When he came, he didn't die for some of your sin or most of it. He died for all of it. And if you are willing to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I cannot merit heaven by my good deeds. Your word says, if I could be saved by works, you died for no reason. But I admit my sin is wrong, that it needs forgiveness and changing. And so this morning I put my faith where you put your sin. You said you bore our sin in your body on the cross. And you shouted your sinlessness to the world when you were raised from the dead. Say it, mean it, believe it. Lord Jesus, save me. And I thank you that you saved me, not because I feel it, but because your word is trustworthy. Help me not to be cowardly, but to publicly confess you before men. Now, Holy Father, we thank you that you are in control of this mixed up world. That the things that we are witnessing are the things that you wrote about centuries in advance to remind us what would unfold at the end of time. Help us to be good, faithful stewards of the gospel this week. While we cannot share with everyone, give us someone to share with. Help us to see people the way you see them, either forever headed for heaven or forever headed for hell. Help us to be gracious and kind. May our words be seasoned with salt. May we reach out in love to people who need to know how to be forgiven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 030. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.